show. The no make it show. Yeah, uh-huh. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. Hello and welcome to the Nomiki Show. It is June 1st. And as we say in Greek, alomina, meaning happy month <laughs> or good months, I guess, is the best way of saying it. Uh, you say that on the first of the month. All right. So I have had a theory for a while that Gen X lawmakers, specifically in the Senate, like don't know who they are. Uh, we're talking about Cory Booker, who, you know, these are these are folks that they came up at an era, in an era of neoliberalism, who were recruited by neoliberal forces, supported by them, their donors, the organizations, a lot of them got involved with APAC and a lot of neoliberal organizations uh, were you know, semi-conservative on, on issues regarding, uh, you know, any sort of foreign policy. This is what that era of politician uh, was, th th this is what's ingrained in them. Except the problem is, for them to have a future, they need to be in touch with the future, which is far more progressive, far more you know, interconnected when it comes to issues related to class and race and gender, and far less willing to buy the washing of politics, meaning greenwashing, sex washing, gender washing. Uh, we know the jam. So I wanna talk to you about Kirsten Cinema because Kirsten Cinema is 44 years old, she is Gen X. She is the senator, of course, from Arizona. She was born in Tucson, Arizona, where I was also born. I grew up in Buffalo, New York. She grew up in the panhandle of Florida. She went back to Arizona to organize. I went back for school and I also organized. Uh, she was in the legislature at the local level as a, she first ran as a Green Party candidate. She finished last in that race as a Green Party candidate. And in her book, she talks about the dilemma of having to make friends in different places. Now in 2006, despite what people think, the state actually turned blue. Uh, that was the year where Democrats won back Congress. I was involved in that organizing that year, I know firsthand. A lot of the political figures you see today, like Representative Ruben Gallego, and uh, who's in Congress, and his ex-wife, who's now the mayor of Phoenix, Kate Gallego, and folks like uh, uh, Martin Gazzara, who was the co-chair for Bernie's campaign in Arizona, who is a state lawmaker and a progressive uh, hero. They, we all came up together. So we remember what Kirsten Cinema used to be, who she used to be. Now, I, of course, left Arizona um, and I've been in New York now, ooh, 10 years, uh, but they stayed and they got organized. And I want to talk a little bit about the course of, course of Kirsten Cinema and how she ended up becoming, how she made the decision to become the holdout in the Senate, the next Joe Manchin, and how she thought she could get away with it. Now, Kirsten Cinema, of course, just a few weeks ago, famously decided to walk into the Senate chambers when, when there was a vote on the $15 minimum wage increase. She brought a chocolate cake with her. Cake. Yes, let them eat cake. And then decided to walk to the front of the Senate and curtsy while she aggressively voted down on increasing the minimum wage. Later, she was caught, uh, she was caught in a recording where she was talking to the Restaurants Association in Arizona who's aggressively against the $15 minimum wage, essentially saying she's got their backs. These are decisions that she has made time and time again to side with big business, aggressively so, in which she supposedly did not side with in 2006. She has made decision after decision, moment by moment, to move more and more to the center, thinking about not her political future, because her political future isn't dependent on business, but about herself. I think this is an ego thing. I don't think this is about Kirsten Cinema thinking she's not getting reelected. She thought she had to move further and further to the right and be bipartisan when the legislature was Republican, when she was in the legislature. Sometimes you have to write legislation and bring Republicans on, but you can choose what kind of legislation you do that with. 
Bernie Sanders does it all the time, but he doesn't sell himself out. He doesn't sell working people out. He finds a common ground issue, whether it's taking on pharmaceutical companies or housing. We know that there are plenty of ways for Republicans of some sort to come together with progressives of some sort, especially when Democrats and progressives do not hold the majority of the legislature. But when we do hold the majority of the legislature, there's no excuse for bipartisanship. There's no excuse for the path to bring on Republicans instead of your progressive or Democratic allies when you think numbers are on your side. Now, Kirsten Cinema wants to hold up the filibuster with Joe Manchin. Now, we know who Joe Manchin is. But Kirsten Cinema, I don't think anybody knows who she is. I don't think she knows who she is. But one thing I can say for sure is Kirsten Cinema is concerned about Kirsten Cinema at this point. She has every opportunity, every opportunity now to be a hero in this situation. Think about all the feminist organizations and, and when she ran for Congress in 2012, there were plenty of other uh, folks running in that race who were qualified, progressive, had name ID, but guess what? There was this coalition, including feminist organizations and LGBTQ organizations that came together for Kirsten Cinema because they thought that she was the future, but now she is making Democrats embarrassed. She's losing support from Democrats nationwide, and I'm sure that's cutting into her fundraising because she is now becoming the brand that is literally holding up democracy in this country at a time when we are in crisis. And it is not because it's Arizona. It is not because she has to appeal to conservatives or business interests. What are the excuses in New York where Wall Street reigns and real estate reigns? There are plenty of Democrats who are willing to step up and be bold on progressive issues in New York, not bold enough always, but bold. When it comes to democracy, which is what this filibuster is, Kirsten Cinema cannot run. And the only thing that is keeping her going right now with this, this act that she's playing is the fact that she thinks her election is in four years and people will forget. But this filibuster, if it doesn't go away, it is going to be brought up every single time. Something transformative does not get passed. And she's going to be the face of it. And there's gonna be more and more of a coalition building because guess what? Arizona is only becoming more progressive. It is shown that through history, it's becoming more populist and more progressive. You're not gonna win that Trump base and you're gonna piss off whatever business friendly Democrats decided to vote for you in the first place because you are holding up democracy. We are in an economic crisis and there have to be solutions. And if people start to see Kirsten Cinema as the face of blocking solutions, then more and more coalitions are gonna to come together. They're gonna to start protesting her. They're gonna be calling her office, not just from Arizona anymore, but all across the country. You're gonna see people organizing to run against her. I think she doesn't have a sense of the weakness, the weak place she's in right now. Let's not forget to mention the coalitions of Latinos that have organized over the last 20 years, really, really planted those seeds over the last 20 years, knocking on doors, organizing folks to vote, stepping up in solidarity. That makes a difference. And let me tell you, in four years, that coalition will be bigger. So if Kirsten Cinema is really concerned with herself, which it seems like she is, maybe she should think about what those coalitions are going to be doing to her ego. Because right now she's not answering the press. She's not answering labor leaders in her own state, labor leaders that have very strong relationships with the new Senator Mark Kelly. She's not answering Democrats or progressives. She's ignoring it all. She's up against the wall. And the only thing that she has on her side right now is a little bit of business interest money that might come in for her and support her and time. But that is why organizing always wins, even in right-to-work states. So think about this right now. Whatever Arizonans can't do to organize because they live in a right-to-work state, those of us across the country who have the ability to organize and call her office and call other lawmakers to call her out, to call the Restaurant Association, to call all of the interest groups, to call Senator Schumer to say, enough to call Joe Biden, I mean, that's gonna to be tough, but he's feeling the heat too. But Senator Schumer, 
Senator Schumer, it is time to you to for you to show your leadership because this is a crisis of democracy. We are in a spiraling economy right now. Income inequality was already worse than it ever been. And now it is about to, we don't even know the numbers yet. I say this all the time, I'm on repeat. We don't even understand in our bones how bad the economy is. And the solutions that we could present come through the fact that Democrats control the Senate and the House, but it is held up because of a crisis in democracy that is being held up by two egotistical senators. So pick up your phone, put on your sneakers, and go protest Kirsten Cinema because enough with her little ego. It is enough. She's holding up democracy, and history will not reflect well. All right, we have a great show today. Um, <laughs> had to get that out of my system. I was a little upset today when I saw the story that you should go check out. It's in uh, the 19th. It's a, it's a publication focused on uh, women and politics and policy intersectionally. Uh, so go check that out. We'll put it in the, um, uh, in the info section. Uh, but we have Jonathan Rapping on today. He is the author of Gideon's Promise, a public de defender movement to transform criminal justice. It is uh, published by Beacon Press. And later, of course, we have Napoleon the uh, Legend and Napoleon the Legend and Joshua Khan Russell. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I'm excited to welcome our first guest today, Jonathan Rapping. He's the uh, founder and president of Gideon's Promise, and he is the author of Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice, published by Beacon Press. Uh, Gideon's Promise is a nonprofit public defender organization whose mission is to transform the criminal justice system by building a movement of public defenders who provide equal justice for marginalized communities. He's also a professor of law and director of the Criminal Justice Certificate Program at Atlanta uh, John Marshall School of Law, and also a visiting professor at Harvard Law. My goodness. Lots there, but I guess it's all the same topic. So, <laughs> all relates. It is so good to be here with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having for coming on, Jonathan. Yeah. So we have seen this movement uh, in recent years of of progressive uh, public defenders running. Uh, across the country. I mean, I, I live in Queens. We had a big race a few years ago in Queens. Um, of course, you know, just a few days ago, there was a re-election of uh, the DA in, in in Philadelphia, and of course, you know, San Francisco, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is this a new phenomenon, or is this this been building for a while? Yeah, no. So, so you said um, progressive public defenders, and I, I know you meant progressive prosecutors. Um, Excuse me, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, right. So, so I like to think by definition, public defenders um, are supposed to be progressive. They're, they're not always progressive, which is why our organization exists. But when it comes to progressive prosecutors, I do think it's a, a new phenomenon. I sort of resist the term progressive prosecutor because I think um, in a system that is designed to ensure that people on the margins, low-income people, people of color um, are treated inhumanely. You can't come in and be progressive. I think you can be less dangerous, less punitive. And I think there are a lot of progressive people who are running to be reform-minded prosecutors. I think that is a new phenomenon. I think it is uh, great that we have people doing that. But, but as I say in the book, without public defenders who make sure that those prosecutors actually know the human beings who, who, who are impacted by their decisions, who, without making sure they know the stories and the circumstances, even the best prosecutors can't do justice. We need to know the human beings, and that's why public defenders are so critical. Okay, so on one hand, you have um, prosecutors, and thank you for correcting me, I don't <laughs> slipping. Um, my father, the lawyer, would, would kill me right now for saying <laughs> that. <laughs> I hope he's not he watching. He forgive you, he forgive you. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Um, so, so alternatively, you, you have the public defender system. And can you just kind of describe what, like, how, how does it work? How does, how does the average, it's so hard to describe, you know, the average incident, but say somebody um, in New York City where I live, right? Uh, say somebody is, is arrested for jumping a turnstile mm -hmm. and they have a previous arrest record for uh, possession of marijuana, for instance, and they're sent 
you know, they, they, they have to come up with bail. They have to figure out the system. They're, they're, uh, they come from a low-income background. Uh, what, how does the system treat them, and how does, how does this get worked out with public defenders? Yeah, no, it's such a great question. So, so I, I mean, I think the audience needs to understand that, that back in 1963, that's when the Supreme Court decided a case called Gideon versus Wainwright, which is where the, the name of our organization and the book comes from. And what it did was it made a promise. It said that for anyone who is thrown into our criminal legal system, they can't get justice without a lawyer. The system is just too complicated procedurally. And so it promised that if you don't have the means to hire a lawyer, the state is required to give you one. And that sort of birthed public defenders across the nation. I mean, they existed before, but it, it made it a mandate. It made it a promise. And, and, and and what you have to understand is that today, over 80% of the people, right, eight out of 10 people in our criminal legal system are too poor to afford lawyers. They rely on court-appointed lawyers. They rely on public defenders. And, and, and we have a system that targets disproportionately people who are poor and people of color. So as you pointed out, in New York, someone might be arrested for jumping a turnstile. Someone might be arrested because they're caught with a small amount of drugs. Whereas for people who are more privileged, oftentimes they are using drugs on college campuses with their friends. They're not targeted. So, so really, I, I think what public defenders, why they're so important is that when we target people because of who they are, what they look like and where they live, their ability to maneuver a system and to be able to extricate themselves from a system that does so much harm really depends on the, the quality of the lawyer we give them. And when I say quality, that's a lawyer not just who is skilled and trained and experienced, but they have manageable caseloads. They have a mindset that says, I care about the people I serve. And unfortunately, in America, we have, we, we have rendered most public defenders overwhelmed under-resourced, overburdened, and therefore unable to give everyone the kind of justice that the system sort of envisioned when the Gideon decision was decided. Um, where do the public defenders fall under? Like it's, it's, they're not in the DA's office, is it the courts? How, how do, who do they yeah. answer to? Yeah, I mean, it, so, so really public defenders, uh, it varies across the country. There is no one size fits all. Some states, have statewide systems where every public defender is a state employee. Some states actually have delegated the obligation to ensure people have lawyers to counties and counties decide. And so that means in wealthier counties, if you're arrested in a wealthier county, you're probably gonna get a public defender with more resources than in a less wealthy county. Um, but, but one thing that is critical is that however public defenders are assigned to people, they have to be independent. So in many places, judges select public defenders or judges appoint court-appointed lawyers. So imagine the conflict now. I'm a public defender. I represent a, a person charged with a crime. I'm before a judge who is overwhelmed, who needs to move a busy docket, and they're saying, rapping, I need you to move this case quickly. And if you want to resist, I may not give you another case. That happens all across America. So while technically public defenders aren't and can't be part of the judiciary or part of the prosecution, the executive branch, far too often the structure of the system creates conflicts where public defenders can't be completely loyal to the people that they serve. And, and how many cases, um, you know, on average, I, I guess it's very hard to say, but, but like just to give people context of the caseload and, and how how does that play out? I mean, if you if you have several cases, you know, how long do these cases usually go for with the pressure of of wrapping them up quickly? I guess. Well, I mean, there, there are studies that show it, and 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 Gideon's promise. We serve public defenders in some of the most under resourced jurisdictions across the country. It is not uncommon for our lawyers to have three, four, five hundred cases at a time, right? Which means. Um, you, you can't do anything but triage. You literally are in a position where you have to decide who am I gonna give resources to and who am I gonna let fall through the cracks? And what that does to a, 
a, a public defender, a lawyer who may be noble and courageous and have all the right values, even the best of us, after a while, that will start to cause an emotional toll. It'll start to get you to either quit or even worse, become resigned to a system and go along with the processing. And so Gideon's promise really came along to take public defenders who are passionate, who come to this work for the right reasons, who are going into systems that are beating that passion out of them, and to build a community that can support them, to give them training and mentorship, and help them start chipping away at that everyday injustice while at the same time forgiving themselves for all the injustice they witness because of things beyond their control. Is this where we get into a situation where people are, are forced to plea? Absolutely. So, so uh, in, 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 in our criminal legal system, uh, you know, we have this fantasy of the sort of the trial and that the truth comes out at trial. In reality, only less than 5% of the cases end up in trial, the vast majority result in pleas, and that's because it is a system that is designed to force people to plead guilty. People, almost virtually everyone in the system is low income. The vast majority of people are low income. Like I said, 80% of them qualify for court-appointed counsel. Disproportionate of their people for, uh, of color. Folks are arrested. They are held pre-trial, presumed innocent, given money bonds that they can't afford. They're now sitting in jail. During this pandemic, we have seen prosecutors and judges who have agreed that if someone just pleads guilty, they can get out of a dangerous, potentially life-threatening cell. But if they refuse to plead guilty, they're going to stay in that cell. Think of the pressure to give up your constitutional rights and plead guilty. On top of that, prosecutors overcharge, right? We have a thousands of behaviors are criminalized in the criminal code. So prosecutors, for anything someone does wrong, any mistake someone makes, prosecutors can stack four, five, six, seven charges on them and make the risk of going to trial really high, which gives them leverage to force someone to plead guilty. And then there are draconian sentences, some of them carrying mandatory minimums, and prosecutors have a tool to say, we will, we will not ask for the mandatory minimum if you just plead guilty. The, the fact of the matter is most people are unwilling to take the incredible risk that it takes to go to trial. And we have a plea bargaining system where it's not justice, it is prosecutors using leverage to get people to admit guilt because the prosecutor thinks they did something wrong. Innocence doesn't matter. Innocence does not matter at all. Um, okay, so, so in terms of numbers, like comparatively, what is the, I mean, prosecutors have the upper hand without a doubt, but uh, I mean, surely they're overworked as well. So how does this usually play out? I mean, it, it doesn't just move through so fast. Uh, you know, there's an old line in, in, in politics that if you want if, 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 if you want to run somebody over, you know, you move it through committee really fast. <laughs> no, no that, that's right. So, so you know, I, I actually, in the book, I use this example where I say, you know, if, if we had a legislature that said, we are only going to fund 100 miles of highway, and the public demanded 500 miles of highway, and the head of the Department of Transportation said, I am going to bend to the will of, of the public, and I'm going to build 500 miles of highway with funding for 100 miles worth. And I know it's gonna be broken, and I know it's gonna be dangerous, and I know people are gonna die, but I'm gonna do it anyway. As soon as people started dying, we would run that person out of the Department of Transportation. Yet in our criminal legal system, what happens is, the legislature funds 100 units of justice. The public demands 500 units of prosecution of justice. And instead of prosecutors saying, you know what? I can't do that. I am going to have to prioritize the 100 units of justice that I think are most important. Prosecutors force 500 units into a system, resourced for 100 units. Inevitably, people right, are hurt, they're harmed, families, communities are harmed, but no prosecutor is run out on a rail because what that happens in, in places where there are no cameras, it's invisible. The injustice has become normalized. And most people don't even realize that that harm is being done in America's courts. 
you know, I, if, if you have a minute, I, I'd love to share a quick story with you. I, I, uh, I, my, my wife and I have two children, and my wife is the co-founder of Gideon's Promise. She's not a, a lawyer. She's got an amazing story, which hopefully I'll be able to share later. But we have two children, and we took them to Washington, D.C., and we took them to the National Museum of African American History. My, my children are, are biracial. They certainly identify as Black, and they were very moved by this history, which is their history. And, and it's this amazing museum where you start 400 years ago and work up ramps through a period of slavery and, and Black codes and, and Jim Crow. And we got to about the 1960s. It was midday. We were exhausted. It was mentally heavy. So we left and decided we'd come back the next day and finish. We had lunch. And my kids said, Daddy, I want to see the courtrooms where you started practicing because I started my career in D.C. So we go into a courtroom in D.C. where they do what's called first appearance hearings. It's where people are brought in the day after they're arrested. And we sit down. My son is 10 at the time. They call the first case. And it's a man, a young black man, hands are shackled together, chained to a chain around his waist. And they spend about 30 seconds, a minute on it, move on to the next case. And they have another case, same thing, young black man chained. And after about six of these, my son turns to me and says, Daddy, this is just like that museum. And it struck me that here is a judge, defense lawyers, prosecutors, courtroom staff, who have become so immune so desensitized to the everyday processing. It's been so normalized that a 10-year-old child recognizes that what is happening in this courtroom is more akin to slavery or Jim Crow than anything that looks like justice. And yet, and I'm not knocking the criminal justice professionals in DC, you could go to any courtroom in the country and you will see well-intentioned criminal justice professionals who have become desensitized to everyday injustice that happens to poor people's children, black and brown children, children of people who live on the margins. What is the incentive for prosecutors to push through these cases? I mean, uh, that's something I just never really understood fully, other than maybe some sort of political incentive and moving up or you know, running for DA someday um, or, or, or just politics in general. I've never really understood the incentive yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting question. And really, I wrote the book to get at what I think is an answer to that question that we just aren't really talking about much. And, and that is, uh, I believe there is a culture. There is a culture in our criminal legal system that shapes people into professionals they never would have recognized as young folks coming right out of law school. And so I think it is tempting to say, well, you know, there are prosecutors who are intentionally convicting innocent people for political gain. And, and those folks, I, I'm willing to believe some of them exist. But I think for the most part, that's not what's happening. For the most part, there are people that come into a system and they start to believe this culture teaches them that there are the thems and the us's. And the people they're prosecuting are the thems. They're dangerous. They're actually subhuman, right? We, we literally couldn't treat people the way we do if we truly saw them as valuable members of the community we belong to. And when you start to buy that narrative that says some people are subhuman, all of a sudden the goal becomes keeping them away from us. And I think that explains why so many prosecutors with such relish jump into this, this sort of, um, th th this, th this, this job that they see as locking away people who they see as dangerous and inhumane. And it's why public defenders are so important because it's public defenders that are con the conscience of the system that are always there to remind prosecutors and judges, these are children just like our children and they deserve to be treated as such. So you're, you're doing work to support um, public defenders. Uh, what, what institutionally needs to be addressed uh, first? And then, and then we'll talk about what the kind of work you're doing um, with public defenders itself. Well, I mean, institutionally, we talked about structure, right? Public defenders need independence. They need resources. But, but I think, you know, I, I don't think we could talk about public defenders without acknowledging that we are at a really important moment in time as a nation. A week ago, um, 
we observed the one-year anniversary of the very brutal killing of George Floyd. Over the last year, I've got a 16-year-old daughter who's who's been activated. She's out in the streets, right? So many people are out in the streets recognizing that, that, that law enforcement is visiting violence upon black and brown communities. And, and I think it's important to recognize that most people survive police encounters and they are thrown into a criminal legal system where they're subjected to a routine, normalized, invisible violence, right? CNN isn't capturing it. And, and, and that violence is only interrupted when you have public defenders who see the humanity of the people there and who have the resources and time to really interrupt it. So when you say what institutional changes need to be done, I say back up and let's start with, it is people, activists, organizers in the streets that have forced us to confront the violence of policing in America. We need people to actively also oppose the violence that is happening in courtrooms so that we can actually get the will to start to address those structural challenges. Do you feel that there's enough conversation um, being had publicly about this to, to, to be able to activate folks through other organizations that are talking about, you know, criminal justice reform and, and uh, defunding the police, def maybe it's defunding uh, the TA's office, I, I don't know. No, I, well, I think all that's right. So, so, so let me say this. I am a criminal justice reformer. Um, the book is not just about public defenders for the sake of talking about public defenders. It is a book about a, a vision of transforming our criminal justice system. And it argues that public defenders are critical to that. So as someone who is a criminal justice reformer, I am, I, I, I am I'm heartened by the fact that for the last several years, we've been talking about criminal justice reform. We have recognized that criminal justice can't be disentangled from racial justice and economic justice. We've been talking about police abuse and defund the police. We've been talking about the problems with prosecutors and electing reform-minded prosecutors and maybe even defunding prosecutors. But, but the piece that has been missing, that has been absent, is any mention of public defenders. We don't understand public defenders as a critical piece of the solution. And what the book argues is that when public defenders reimagine their role, not only as standing next to one person, one case at a time in the courtroom, but they see themselves organizationally as advocates for communities that are thrown into the criminal legal system when every other system fails them, housing, mental health support, substance abuse uh, treatment, um, literacy in schools. When those fail, we deal with those problems in the criminal legal system. Public defenders have to be there to see the human being standing there and make sure the system sees the human being and what brought them there in the first place. In terms of supporting public defenders, what is, you mentioned briefly some of the work that you're doing, but uh, your, your mission is to support public defenders. So, so how does that happen? Yeah. So, so I want to share one more quick story with you because sure, I feel, you know, I, I, I mean, I am on the show speaking for Gideon's Promise, but as, as I said, it was co-founded with my wife. Um, my wife, I, my introduction to the criminal legal system really came when I was a young public defender. Uh, hers came when she was five years old. She grew up in Buffalo in a low-income Black community. Are you from Buffalo? Yes. Wow. <laughs> that was a moment, right? Wow. I didn't want to interrupt your story, but I was like, I'm from Buffalo. <laughs> she, she should be on the show. You exactly. were talking about Buffalo. So, so she's from Buffalo. And, and when she was five, her father was arrested and charged with crimes he committed years earlier. By the time he was arrested, he turned his life around. He had three children. She was the oldest at five, a fourth on the way, married had a small business, he converted to Islam, and he was arrested and given a public defender. And that public defender never told his story. And without that story being told, he was processed as a case file through the system and sentenced to 10 years in Attica. And she grew up knowing her father from behind bars. And what my wife, Illy, always says that moves me so much is she says, you know, what was even harder than growing up knowing my father from behind bars was coming to the realization that the people I love don't matter. Most of the men in her life had been impacted by the criminal legal system. 
and they had public defenders. And what was so striking to me was this five-year-old girl understood that message and the person who primarily conveyed it was a public defender. I don't think that public defender was ill-intentioned. I imagine they came to the work for the right reasons, but they were so beaten down, so overwhelmed, so, so under-resourced, they didn't even appreciate not only the damage they were doing to the person standing next to them, but the message they sent a five-year-old girl and her family and her community and all across the country. There are five-year-old children like that who are learning every day, right? that I don't matter. And for many of them, a public defender who just doesn't see their role beyond the courtroom is, is conveying that message. So what can we do? We can insist that we support public defenders, but not just because they are advocates in the courtroom who protect our civil rights, which they do, but because they are so often the advocates that families need to make sure we see them as human beings in systems that otherwise will discard their humanity and discard their lives. So day to day, how does this look? Well, so, so day to day, I think what, what we need to do is we need to start getting people who have been activated, who recognize that we have not achieved racial justice in America, that the fight for racial justice is ongoing. We need them to actually connect the violence that's happening in the streets, the violence that's happening to people with respect to, to, to housing that's not affordable and schools that are inadequate, connect that to the violence that's happening in the criminal legal system understand that we can't tell the story of mass incarceration without talking about public defenders. They are a, that our, our failure to truly appreciate and support public defenders fuels mass incarceration. It actually greases an assembly line that sends people into prisons, jails, and ultimately consequences where they can't vote, return to homes, return to jobs. People need to make sure that we are talking about public defenders as lawyers for communities who are impacted. We need to make sure our administration, and I've got to tip my hat to the Biden administration. I think that the Biden administration has said it is, it is looking to ensure that it is investing in access to justice. It has just ordered the Justice Department, Merrick Garland, to look into reopening the Office of Access to Justice, which Donald Trump shut down. It was an office that was established under the Obama administration. Um, and it is really recognizing that while public defense and most people in the criminal legal system are there through, through state and local systems, it is a national mandate. The right to counsel is a national mandate and our federal government needs to invest in making sure that the people fighting that fight, public defenders have resources, and also make sure that any other criminal justice dollars that go to states come with conditions. You can't have this money states if you are not truly committed to racial and economic justice. Are there states uh, that just put so, I mean, fewer resources into public defenders than, than other states? A absolutely. I, I mean, there are states like Pennsylvania that doesn't even have no state money goes to public defense in Pennsylvania. So if you are in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh, which are relatively well-off counties, right? Allegheny County, um, Pittsburgh, which is where I'm from, uh, there are more resources for public defense. But imagine you're in a small rural jurisdiction in Pennsylvania or Alabama that doesn't have a statewide system, or Mississippi that doesn't have a statewide system, and you rely on your county for dollars, and it's a poor county, you have a completely different level of representation than if you are in a larger area, and particularly a progressive area that is willing to invest more of its budget on justice. So I think that's important. You know, one other point I want to just really quickly make, because I, I think we often talk about wrongful convictions as a consequence of not funding justice, of not funding public defense, of not making sure our system lives up to its ideals. Um, and, and, and I wanna urge the, the listening audience to view wrongful convictions more broadly than they might. I think we think of wrongful convictions as someone who is innocent, who is convicted of a crime. I would argue wrongful convictions are broader than that. They are 
people who are punished for mistakes in ways that are inconsistent with justice. If my child gets caught with some marijuana, I am going to deal with that in a way that ensures that they are safe and healthy and can continue their development and their education. Other people have children, if they're caught with marijuana, that could result in a prison term. It could result in them not having an opportunity to go to college, right, or to get a job. And so those are wrongful convictions as well. And when we understand wrongful convictions as treating people who made mistakes in ways that are inconsistent with how we would treat the people we love, our system is filled with wrongful convictions. We can't count them all. Not to mention you can't provide cash bail, uh, how it facilitates further and further Absolutely. Uh, exacerbated situations. Jonathan Rapping, uh, fascinating conversation. I, thank you so much for joining today. Um, you can check out Jonathan's book. It is called Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to transform criminal justice. It's from Beacon Press. Go get it wherever you buy your books. That's not a bad place. I urge you to do so. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining. We'd love to have you back on. Oh, no, Mickey, I'm so grateful to you for giving me the, the, the chance to talk with you today and I'd come back anytime. And say uh, buffalo love to your, to your wife. <laughs> Lots of buffalo love to my wife, for sure. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. We'll be right back with our panel. We have uh, Joshua Con russell and Napoleon DeLegend here to talk about today's news. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Nummy Key Show. Sorry, there's been some breaking news, so I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of an update. Um, so uh, you may remember that uh, the Trump administration had approved to drill in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This is something that's been going on for a long time. Uh, well before Trump, there's been debate over this, protest over this. It's been an ongoing effort. Uh, so as of just a few minutes ago, the Biden administration has announced that they will suspend oil drilling uh, leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge that were issued in those waning days of the Trump administration according to two people familiar with the matter. Uh, Secretary, according to the New York Times, uh, the Interior Secretary Deb Holland will publish a secretarial order formally rescinding the leases, rescinding, so not new leases, but rescinding the previous leases according to the people um, who are not authorized to speak yet. But uh, this was expected, uh, you know, this is, this is since the Carter administration, uh, Marcella Burke, who's the energy policy lawyer, who served in the Interior Department um, said, uh, she under Trump, excuse me, she said that um, essentially that this is something that, that was to be expected of Democrats, but are also Arctic tribal leaders have been protesting the oil drilling and they praise the move. Um, this is a uh, quote from Tanya Garnett, who's a special projects coordinator for the native village of Veneti tribal government. She said, I want to thank President Biden and the Interior Department for recognizing the wrongs committed against our people by the last administration and for putting us on the right path forward. That goes to show that no matter what odds, the voices of our tribes matter. Um, before we get to uh, just the panel, I, you know, I will note that the because he did it in the last days of the administration, um, they couldn't, the leases, you know, they were, they were starting the process. They hadn't actually facilitated the process. So uh, it's very interesting. So I welcome our panel today. Uh, we have Joshua Kahn Russell, who is of course the executive director of the Wildfire Project. And we have Napoleon DeLegend, Afrobeat hip hop, hip hop artist, straight out of Brooklyn, but in France right now, I think, right? Is that where you are? Oh, uh, right now I'm in Germany. Oh, Germany, I can't keep up, man. I mean, I'm the same International person. man. <laughs> Should I say? Germany, but you were doing all this French, like you, that was in going, France before. Going okay, everywhere. So. Yeah, I've, How I've been How many languages France, do you so speak? Uh, just two, basically, you know what I mean? Like, I, I speak a little bit of Swahili, but I, I need to get better at it. And um, just a little, a little bit. bit of Spanish, too. But I speak English and French mostly. Amazing. Well, I uh, I love the Instagram. Like, if you guys haven't followed him on Instagram, he's he shows a lot of sneak peeks behind the scenes and while he's recording and then releases. It's 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 amazing. Um yeah. So any, I know this, this story just broke, but uh, any initial thoughts? Don't stress out. It's breaking news. Live show happens all the time. You don't have to be an expert. <laughs> um, but any initial thoughts on on just where, you know, the Biden administration are sending this uh, seems like, you know, by the urging of, of Native organizing um, on the ground and el elsewhere. 
Yeah, shout out. There's an organization called Native Movement. And, um, you know, so for, I mean, first, it's just the, the continued lesson that organizing works. And so if you want to support this long haul work that's happening, um, check out nativemovement.org. Um, they, as well as groups like Indigenous Environmental Network, were just like sprinting in the last couple months of the Trump administration because they were just trying to ram through everything, they, every possible giveaway to oil and gas uh, that they could in the final months. And so um, while everyone else was focused on the kind of electoral explosion of the moment, they were doing the kind of deeper, longer uh, work. And uh, Native Movement in particular, they're, they're uh, based in Fairbanks, Alaska, and are an alliance of a, a bunch of different kinds of tribes, um, but um, definitely support their work. You know, what's interesting about this is, you know, you mentioned that they they jammed this through in the final moments of the Trump administration. I'm kind of curious why they waited. You'd think that, that, that you know, back when our, uh, our, our, our Secretary of State was Rex Tillerson, he would be all about pushing that through, in the, you know, immediately. But knowing that leases, it's, it, that, that maybe they didn't buy that Biden was going to pull back. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how this how this played out politically. Napoleon, do you have any thoughts? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, why did they wait last minute? Um, uh, maybe for some reason it wasn't a that huge of a priority. And, and after, you know, the election happened, you know, it was just something that was left on the table that they wanted to get through. And to also uh, additionally put some extra pressure on, uh, on the next administration to have to deal with it so they wouldn't have to maybe because of the probably the pressure with the organizing and everything that, that's involved with the politics around it. I just, um, I mean, if the organizations are happy, I, I'm happy. And I, I hope it influences other things, you know, in, in that, and, you know, in that style, you know, with, even with Canada, you know, because they're, they're also trying to do everything to drill in, in, in Native American territories and things like that. I, I, I hope this is a continuing trend. Excuse me. Well, and then it happens um, on a day that uh, the world or much of the world is outraged over uh, the 200 plus indigenous children that were found in a, in a massive grave in Canada and um, result of, of decades and decades of policies coming from not just Canada, but of course the U.S. as well. Uh, well, we have that right there. Thank you. Um, this is horrifying. This is just such a horrifying story. And I think it deserves a whole segment. So we're probably going to talk about it a little bit more tomorrow. But um, 215 children were buried on the grounds of a British Columbia school uh, <laughs> that was just shut down in the 90s, I learned today. Um, so there's there's a lot of coming to light of just the horrors of our government. And I think Biden, I mean, personally, I think Biden and Trudeau are, are just going to be forced into a situation in which they have to uh, step up and show some leadership because this is this has been covered up for too long for the general public. Joshua, go ahead. Yeah, um, you know, we, we can't um, talk about this without talking about um, sexual abuse and suicide and child abuse. And um, it's hard for me to talk about without kind of going numb is what I'm feeling right now. But I think it's really important to talk a lot more about the history of um, residential schooling in Canada when generations of Indigenous children were stolen from their communities and forced into Christian schools to you know, assimilate them through brutality, through, um, you know, torture uh, is, is fresh and, and still with us. We're not talking about history, you know. Um, I was just uh, yesterday talking to my friend, um, Ariel Deranger, who's a grassroots social movement leader from Athabasca Fort Chippewan First Nation, uh, who just wrote an article about um, the trauma that all of her aunties and uncles carry um, the way that they'd be beaten for speaking their native language, um, stripped naked in front of their classmates. Um, one of them would get, you know, vi visits in the night from the priest. Uh, and when she became pregnant, uh, the nuns said that she and the baby were an abomination and it was Satan's work and they had to beat the child out of her. Um, and she herself was a child, you know, a, a rape survivor. And, and these stories are common. And um, Ariel's piece isn't published yet, but I just wanted to lift up her story for a second. Um, 
if I can just read a couple sentences that she, that she sent me um, it, for context, Ariel's my age. Uh, and she, she writes, uh, I'm the first generation on my paternal side to not be forced into a residential school. The first generation. Let that sink in for a moment. Many of my relatives are just slightly older than me and went. This means that some of my cousins were subjected to the torturous treatment that went on in these schools. I just narrowly escaped the fate. Yet, throughout my childhood, I was plagued with the fear that someone would come take me and my siblings away if we didn't behave enough, if my parents didn't provide enough, or simply just because I was Indian and that was what happens to little Indian kids, end quote. And, um, you know, so many Native people that I know are mourning finding this mass grave, but, um, but it's not a surprise, right? It's more confirmation of what everybody knew. Ch children went and never returned to their families uh, and were never given any explanation about what happened to their kids. And um, I think it's important to understand the, the violence that colonization re requires uh, and continues to require because the demands from Native people for getting land back uh, as part of reparations uh, is a badly needed aspect of immediate healing that indigenous sovereignty movements are working toward right now, let alone they're organizing for basics like clean drinking water and communities and the, what we were just talking about of protecting um, the land for, for the sake of our climate and for the sake of all of us. And so, you know, I think for those of us who, who aren't native need, need to support it um, well beyond the calls for days of mourning that are happening in Canada right now. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, that's why the Catholic Church isn't taking responsibility or even offering an adequate apology for this, because they don't want to be held legally or materially accountable. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned, uh, Nomi, the, I mean, the last residential school in Saskatchewan was, wasn't closed till 1996. Um, so it's, it's um, important that this is getting attention right now. Pauline. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, when I hear these stories, I had no idea. Like, I didn't know this was going on. Like, just reading this article today, uh, that this whole schooling system where they were taking the kids to boarding school to, uh, you know, kids culturally genocide, you know, cultural genocide, you know, going on. It just, it's it's, less, it's worse than a, than a horror story, you know what I mean? And um, I mean, it, it, it there's no, there's no words. It makes me sad. And I'm glad that uh, Joshua ties it up to imperialism as a whole. And we need to understand that as part of the imperialistic mission is to not only invade, not only exploit, but also disconnect people from their history, their heritage. And, and, and also the fact that um, kind of like to, uh, to today, I think is the anniversary. It's also, it's, um, the, the oppressor, uh, you know, suppresses the history. Like the, the, the no, the, the, the oppressed don't get to tell their story. And we hear about these stories years later, years later. And it, it seems like a continuous thing that we're living right now where, and I'm hoping that history books or history curriculums are getting updated. Like as we speak to speak about what's going on and things like that. And um, yeah, it's just, it's tragic, it's tragic. I mean, unfortunately, even history books have become such a big industry and have so many religious elements and 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 and, and white supremacist aspects. I mean, uh, you look at states like Texas where they, <laughs> you know, they're fighting the most basic facts, and and all the way up to uh, states like New York where you know you don't have an accurate representation of of racism in this country, even in New York. Um, yeah, it's sociopathic. There's no other way of looking. I mean, I, I, I sit there and I think, who were the people who came up with these ideas? How sociopathic, how groupthink was associated, the, 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 the insanity to even conceptualize, like how missing of empathy, it's not just one person, it's, it's uh, to, to commit murders like this and to create these dynamics, it's just, it's such a lesson in, in also just like human psychology and, and how we can all get there again, because I mean, like you said, it was 1996, the school shut down. I mean, this is, this is absolutely, and also just a reminder that our justice system is barely existent. It's a complete facade of a justice system. Um, I do want to shift gears just a second, just a second, speaking of justice system, and it's a big part of the show today. Uh, Mitch McConnell has been railing against defund the police. Um, this is just up. Let's, let's just play this really quick clip because I, there's a greater story behind this, I think. 
think defunding the police has got to be one of the dumbest ideas ever uh, surfaced by anyone in our country. So I'm not surprised, obviously, that Mitch McConnell is against defunding the police. But, uh, you know, I think thinking about the politics right now in, in, in old days where the Republicans did control us on it, this might be a great thing for for central Dem- centrist Democrats to say, well, you know, we can't go to defunding the police because we're going to lose our elections. We're going to, um, you know, in in, in Congress, we're going to lose seats in Congress because they're making this essential piece of their their, um, you know, their campaign. But really, all that's holding anything up right now is Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and 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 you know President Biden and Chuck Schumer having some courage to to hold them out. So. Is he signaling that defund the police is going to be, instead of socialism and AOC or whatever they usually throw out there, um, that defund the police is now the the central point of the midterms? But like, I don't know. I feel like that might backfire. Maybe I'm maybe I'm a little bit wrong. Like, if if progressives and 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 normie Democrats do a really good job of explaining what defund the police is specifically, I think it could backfire because there's a lot of Republicans who came out, you know disgusted by what was happening in the streets last year and and libertarians as well maybe i'm wrong but you know if, if we put the pressure on mansion and cinema to actually and the filibuster he this might force their hand and we might actually be able to move on this a little bit I, maybe that's just my initial gut reaction but josh what are your thoughts yeah i, I mean i'm i'm curious to look at the polling data around the framing but from from what Oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I, I, can't, I can't remember the which poll it was, but um, people are super receptive to the idea of funding other institutions that that serve community needs, and people are super receptive to the idea of saying, "Oh, of course, if someone's having a mental health crisis, there should be someone who's trained to do that, who who's uh, not going to create situations where the 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 person could end up in jail or or killed." And so I don't know what the, you know, um, I'm not a comms person in that way. Like, I don't know exactly what kind of the messaging and like the framing of it needs to be. Um, But I know that that's wildly popular. Yeah, I I, I agree. I'd be I'd be curious to see where most of the people stand, because, you know, we we. I think we all agree that you know where we stand when it comes to policing on on a leftist standpoint, on a progressive standpoint. But um, I don't know. Like also, you know, what's the best way to word it? Like you said, is it? It's also decriminalizing poverty, which is also what the police is actually doing in America. So depending on the framing, I think Mitch McConnell is making, like you said, it's probably a political chess move to to bring that into the forefront and to create like a wedge. I say, thanks for the challenge. Now it's on us. I, I really do think this might backfire. If 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 we're able to lock Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Cinema and, and, and Manchin into supporting ending the filibuster. If we can actually do that, I think this might backfire. And wh- whereas we're all going to have to come up, if they're going to make it the central theme, then let's do it. Then let's actually have a real conversation, re-message this, be really strategic. Because like you said, Joshua, most people do want to see resources reallocated into other areas. And it's, and, and I think it'll be a really dirty fight. Um, you'll see police unions doing all they can to put fear. And you're seeing the New York Post and Republicans, you know, cities on fire we need police really how, how great were the police um in preventing this because because new york city has the strongest police force in the world and uh I, I don't know they weren't able to stop all these uh slashings and no no how about you fund communities just fund things fund the power authority in puerto rico instead of privatizing it which just happened today um on that note believe it or not my power has been a little glitchy on the day that the power authority was privatized in Puerto Rico. So uh, it's been a fun show today. Anyways, I love you guys. Uh, next time back. we'll go longer. Take the power back. Take it back. Um, love you all. Napoleon, the legend. We love you, Napoleon. And we love you, Joshua. Uh, Joshua Con russell uh, We will see you next week. We'll have a little bit of a longer segment. We will cut a little bit. We'll cut short today because my lights are flickering over there. <laughs> There's no other way of saying it. All right, I'm going to do some quick shout outs before I lose all power. It's also raining. It's sort of like pouring outside and the wind's blowing, you know, 
happens what happens i guess all right dr farmer thank you for the sub on twitch and ken m so much love uh says much love from the uk so much love to you ken m and kyla rosado says pride was a protest so what better way to celebrate than to lambast the only by senator senator holding up congress why can't cinema be senator baldwin why can't cinema just be a democrat I, you know, be you. Do all the things that you want to do. Just be a Democrat. You can dress however you want, act however you want, have sex or not have sex with whoever you want. I don't care. Just, if you're going to be a Democrat, run as a Democrat, take money from Democrats, be supported by Democrats, say you're a Democrat, then actually be a Democrat. Or how about this? Be pro-democracy. Because democracy, lowercase d, is not a Democrat versus Republican thing. Even, even John McCain kind of got that. Kevin Griffin sends his love, and so does AJ Duenas. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the super chats. Uh, what else do we have here? This That doesn't look like it went through. I don't know what that was. Okay, these are the same ones, I think. Uh, sometimes this happens on our... Grammar Socialist says, as a Canadian, I'm glad to see this is getting US coverage. The image we have of being a friendly country is predicted on an attitude inherited from the British. Basically, we smile and apologize as we murder your family. Thank you, Canadian. Thank you so much, well said, Grammar Socialist. Uh, Autumn Leaves says, could I get a shout out? It would make my day. Shout out, shout out Autumn Leaves. <laughs> thank you all and thank you to everybody who is in a live chat right now. Uh, live chats on Twitter, Twitch, excuse me, Twitch and YouTube. Thanks for working those algorithms. We will see you tomorrow on Wednesday. I'm gonna go figure out what's going on with the power because Fun times here. Fun times in an austerity, non-state, but doesn't want to be a state. It's a territory, commonwealth, self-determination. <laughs> what to call it? Fun times. All right, we will see you tomorrow. Stay in solidarity.